The following content is from Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a gospel-driven high-adventure camp in western North Carolina. Go to swoutfitters.com to learn more about our camps and conferences. Enjoy the message. So tension can be a good thing. Sometimes I think we're scared of tension. We kind of freak out like... I was talking to a guy last night, and he's a friend of mine, and our girls play ball together, and he's a, he is a progressive, liberal, whatever you want to call it, and I don't think he's a Christ follower at all. And, but, like, I enjoy hanging out with him, and, and Little and I, my wife and I, were talking this afternoon about how it's encouraging when you, don't, when you can hang out with somebody that you've got major differences with. You know, like, it seems like your generation is being taught that tension is bad. And not all tension is bad. Like some tension is for sure, and we're not going to get into that. But the scripture is often going to provide tension. You don't need to be scared of that. So like, listen, listen. When the scripture teaches us that we're secure in Christ, and then the teacher warns us about walking away, we don't abandon the one for the other. Y'all with me? We hold them both firmly believing that God has placed us in a place of tension. And sometimes we can kind of figure it out if we do the hard work. And sometimes there's just a mystery to it. And, and so if, if God is, here's, here's the thing. If God is saving us and keeping us and guarding us and he who is faithful to, to, like, like to start a good work in you will be faithful to complete that work in you. That's a promise of scripture, man. That's not like some random cross your fingers, buy the lottery ticket kind of hope. You know what I'm saying? Our hope rests on something that's solid and secure. So I want to I take that conversation one step further tonight with some examples. I, I feel like uh, we've talked a lot this morning in both sessions uh, about some weighty things concerning people walking away, falling away, drifting away. This morning we, we said that we see three, three things that typically happen. People turn away, they fall away, or they become indifferent. And that's a danger that every one of us and every one of you needs to be aware of. Don't turn away. Don't fall away. Don't become indifferent. And we walked through what it looks like to guard against that. But tonight I want to look at some examples of faith because ultimately what, what, what keeps us on the path is recognizing that we live by faith. And the tension of faith is that ultimately we're not going to always have all the answers to all the questions, but God has revealed enough of himself to us that who he is and what he's done is undeniable. So we'll go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, 7, and 8. Verses 6, 7, and 8. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Stop right there. Let's pray and ask God's blessing once more on the hearing of his word. God, I pray you'd bless our time in the study of your word tonight and shape us by it and give us the courage and humility to respond to it in Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at three thoughts in these verses. The first one is, in verse six, we see that faith pleases the Lord. Now, when you're in a place where your relationship with God 
listen, is bringing pleasure to God, that's a powerful place. It's a powerful place. My youngest son, who a lot of y'all know, carrying a mannequin head around up here on stage, weird. I told him it was. I don't know, man. I, I don't know. Y'all pray for us. So, so like, but I love, to say, I love to say to him, and I'm old, I'm old enough to be his granddad, you know, so it's already just kind of like he's nine, and I've got buddies my age who have grandkids that are 10 and 11, you know. So, so I'm like, hey, buddy, you know, I really, really, really like being your daddy. Like that idea of pleasure, there's some, it's, that's different than saying I love you or saying, man, I really like to hang out with you. Like faith brings pleasure to God. Like have you ever been challenged to think that God could experience pleasure? But I think we tend to think of God in his sovereignty, in his providence, in his, we could work through the communicable attributes and characteristics of God, the incommunicable attributes and characteristics of God, and his perfection and all of his characteristics, and the fact that we could never get to God unless he revealed himself to us, and that he dwells in unapproachable light, and he is unbound by anything that we are bound by, and he seems wholly and completely other than us, and yet... You can live a life and take actions in your day-to-day existence that bring him pleasure. They bring him pleasure. Isn't that awesome? They bring pleasure to God. So faith brings pleasure to God. It pleases God. Now, there are two effects of that. Um, in verse 6, it says that whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he reward, that he rewards those who seek him. So the first effect of that is it draws us close to the Lord. So when we put our faith in God, that draws us close to God. Faith in the Lord always results in us being close to the Lord, drawing close to the Lord. It's, faith is not distant. Faith draws us. It's just a simple biblical principle that almost doesn't need to be expounded on. Faith draws me closer to God. So when I put my faith and my trust in him, it draws me closer to him. It's not, listen, listen, listen. It's not, I got to get close to God, then I can live by faith. I got to get close to God, then I can call out and he will save me. That's a lie that a lot of people believe. How many times have you ever thought or heard someone say, man, I just got to get my junk together. I got to get some things straightened out. Then I'm going to start coming to church. By faith, we draw near to God. Not first by action. First by faith, and the faith leads to action. And so he says that faith draws us close to the Lord. Then he says faith not only draws us close to the Lord, but that God gives and that faith brings blessing from the Lord. It says that God rewards those who seek him. He rewards those who seek him. I think think maybe the greatest earthly reward anybody's ever received is those shepherds that came to the to the, to the um, stable that night to see Jesus. They seek him. They came to seek him, and there's a blessing that comes with that. And so, so he tells us that faith pleases the Lord, it draws us close, and then it brings blessing from the Lord. The second thing in our text is in verse 7, and he uses Noah as an example. It says that faith takes God at his word. Faith takes God at his word. F.F. Bruce, in his good commentary on Hebrews, says, the, I, I pause there because our institute uh, has just gone through this commentary, and it's phenomenal commentary. You want a commentary on Hebrews, get F.F. Bruce's commentary. Faith takes God at his word. Listen to what Bruce says. The faith which our author has in mind and embraces his belief in the invisible spiritual order and belief in the promises of God which have not yet been fulfilled. 
Belief in the invisible spiritual order involves, first and foremost, believing in him who is king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. And belief in God carries with it necessarily belief in his word. So to believe in God is to believe in his word. Listen, let me tell you something. You're living in a, in a, in a, in a cultural climate in America today and in the West that says, you can have faith in God and a relationship with God, but some of the scriptures are antiquated, outdated, misogynistic, xenophobic, chauvinistic, homophobic, and so we need to separate God's word from this idea of this faith that we can have in him. You cannot have faith in God and separate yourself from his word. And, and, and you cannot have faith in God and redefine what his word teaches. The word of God is a gift from God to us. So when, in, in verse 6 when it says that when we draw near to God in faith, we receive blessing from the Lord. One of the blessings that we get from, the God is that he, from God is that he speaks to us through his word. Have you ever thought about there are people who know a lot of Bible, but it doesn't seem to affect them? It's because you can read the Bible and God not speak to you through it. You can read the scripture and God not be speaking to you. You can read it as an observer, as a bystander. But faith draws us near to God, and then his word comes alive and speaks to us. We love the word of God. We believe that he speaks to us through his word. An example that's given in verse 7 is Noah. Now, Noah so trusted God and his word that he made preparation to prepare for fulfillment of the word that God had given him, even though that preparation caused him to take action to do something, such a thing that had never before been seen or heard of. It was ludicrous. God calls him to build a boat in the middle of the land, you know, like build this boat. This is, my pastor Joseph Tucker recently said this, and I love this. He was preaching on Noah's Ark, and he said this. Consider the fact that Noah built a large ship in the middle of dry mountainous land, and he did so with no sail or rudder where in that one symbolic act of construction, he was trusting God fully to not only bring the rain and raise the floodwaters, but to guide this vessel of grace in the midst of destruction. To guide this vessel. So he built a boat, and, that, and when you look through the specifications on the boat, there ain't no sail, and there ain't no rudder, because you just by faith he's getting in the boat, and God's grace in that vessel is going to take him from destruction. So Noah's given as an example. An example of what? By faith, taking God at his word. Taking God. Listen, y'all, you become a student of the word, here's what should happen. Listen to me. I, this is so important. And some of you, I feel like this is for some of us specifically here. When we take God at his word, we don't grow. We don't first grow a robust theology. We become obedient servants of Christ. It's okay to love theology, man. I love theology. It's okay to, to study and to, to want to spend time in your favorite systematic theology book or to study Calvin's Institutes or to read the works of Matthew Henry, and that is awesome. I do those things. I, I, don't, I, I don't read some of that. It's too hard. You've got to be really smart. <laughs> Let's be honest. Some of that stuff's like the other day some guy was like, so when you're reading Calvin's Institutes, I was like, let me stop you. I have seen every episode of the Andy Griffith show at least five times. 
Now, what notes are we going to compare here? <laughs> so, like, but I feel like, but I, but I get it. Like, I love theology and I love to study the doctrines of grace or, or missiology or ecclesiology or eschatology. And some of you don't even know what those words are. That's okay, but that'll come later or whatever. But, like, here's the thing. Faith in God drives me to obey his word and take him at his word. And that brings intimacy with him. Live by faith. Live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Noah shows us what that looks like. He acts on his faith. And then in verse 8, number 3, the last thing we're given, and we're going to elaborate on this a little more. He says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. So he takes the idea of Noah's action and he takes it a step further. Faith acts, it sweats, it obeys. Abraham is the ultimate example and model of, our, of, of what faith is. Let's look in Genesis 12 when we're first really introduced to him. Genesis chapter 12 in the first three verses give us an, a, a really good introduction into the relationship between Abraham, whose name at that point was Abram, and God. In fact, I'm preparing a message on Genesis 12 for tomorrow night at uh, for tomorrow at Red Oak Church, and it's been a really great study. We're going to go all 20 verses in that, and I'm excited about it. But tonight, I just want to introduce Abram and this idea that he's the example of our faith. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So in this, what happens is God gives Abraham a call and then he gives him promises. He gives him a call and then he gives him promises. Both of those are driven by God. Abraham is simply responding. We respond to the Lord. The, our, our salvation is driven by him. It's initiated by him. Your faith is initiated by God. The Lord gives us grace even in allowing us to understand who he is. The Lord gives us grace even in instilling in us a conscience so that Paul would write to Titus and say, the grace of God has appeared to all people. It teaches them to say no to ungodliness. So Paul would write to the Romans in Romans 1 and 2 that people are without excuse because of what God has revealed in general revelation. But in the gospel, God exposes our sin and shows us the answer to our sin. The gospel's what changes us. And God does that. You don't do that. When I was a kid, people, I was always hearing this one thing. Well, if you tonight, if you died and went to heaven and you were asked, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Well, that answer, as Alistair Begg recently said in a sermon, should begin with, because Jesus, not because I. Because I said a prayer, because I did this, because I had faith. No, because Jesus went to the cross in my place, laid down his life for me, and I responded when he called me. See, Abraham's example of faith is an example of what it looks like when someone responds to the call of God. And I think to reconcile some of the tension that even this morning some of us were wrestling with, how is it that God brings somebody into a relationship and then they, they drift away or they fall away or they turn away? Well, here's what's happening. In Abraham's life, we've got this really cool picture of God calls this dude 
And then this process begins that it's not like overnight he becomes the perfect Christian. We see the highs and the lows. We see the ups and the downs. We see, you know, Rob made me laugh out loud today when he was talking about the, the incident with Sarah, Abram's wife, where he, you know, he, he, he spins it off that she's his sister and, and then that twice he does that and you're like, what is this guy doing? And, you know, he commits adultery and fornication as a married man. You're going, this is our example of fate. Well, when we look at Abram, we should see ourselves in that because God doesn't save people because of their righteousness, right? Abram wasn't righteous, and so God saved him. God called him out of unrighteousness. He called him out of slavery to sin. It's the beauty of grace. It's the power of grace. It's powerful. It's wonderful. And I think that, I do think, listen, let me just get candid for a second. I think, imagine, there, I think there are people, I've watched this happen. I've tried to reconcile this in my mind. People that God begins to call and they begin to respond. And, and let me just tell you, I'm, I, am, I lean towards a reformed soteriology. We'll use that. And some of you don't, and some of you do. We're, we don't, that's not where we stand as a ministry. We don't, but I lean, so, so before you say, well, that's just super Calvinistic or that's just super Arminian, I'm going to confuse both of you and you won't know what team I'm on. Okay, but I will tell you, I lean reformed. I lean pretty strongly that way. And here's why, because my salvation experience triggered in me a realization of how broken and, and unwilling I was to repent and turn to Jesus and how overwhelming his grace was. And as a young Christian who didn't even know why I got saved, I started as a 21, 22-year-old to drill into the scripture and God began to reveal himself to me and teach me and it was powerful. But I see this happen. God calls, people begin to respond. And sometimes that's a process. And some of you, your own testimony is that the call itself was a journey and then you arrived at salvation. I believe God began to work in my heart as a teenager, young, as, a, as, a, as a 17, 18 year old teenager. And I think two or three years later is when I fully responded in surrender. Okay, I think that I think that without a doubt, I can look back to when God began to pull on my heart and make me aware of things. But I wasn't in surrender to him, wasn't in obedience because faith drives obedience. Here's what I think I've seen a lot in, in your demographic and in this ministry. God begins to call. I'm going to go serve at Snowbird. I'm going to raise my hands and worship. I'm going to go to the Passion Conference with the Snowbird College Retreat. I'm going to get distracted. I'm going to fall away. I'm going to turn away. I'm going to become indifferent. And the process begins of responding, but we never get to surrender. Are you tracking with that? So how do we reconcile? Man, God, she was working at Snowbird. He was praising the Lord. He went on a mission trip. He was, because he was responding to the call, but until a person surrenders, and what is the evidence of surrender? Right there, a fear of the Lord that leads to obedience. See those signs? I saw a sign in the Hardee's drive-thru, faith over fear. Had something to do with COVID, I think. I'm not even being facetious. Something to do with COVID. faith over fear. And I'm like, no, no, no. For the believer, faith and fear are harmonized. Fear the Lord. There are warnings that Rob walked us through this morning in Scripture. And that I, we, when I was sharing this morning, we looked at warnings in Scripture. But faith... And fear 
drive us to obedience. The fear drives us because we recognize that in the hands of a God who is righteous, we stand condemned. The faith drives us because it is by faith we are saved through his grace so that now we're not condemned. We receive the removal of that condemnation and we're made righteous in Christ. I don't know when that starts and when that stops and where God's sovereignty meets my surrender to his will. I don't know the answer to that. And anybody that tells you they've got that figured out, I don't know. I'd question that. God calls. God moves. It's God's grace. But by faith, we act to a point of surrender. It's critical that we surrender, that we get to that point of surrender. So, so Abram's life is a, is a journey of responding to the Lord, becoming a believer, and then making some mistakes and messing up and not freaking out over it. He didn't freak out. Eh, he freaked out a little bit at times, and that's okay. You need, you need good friends that'll slap you around and say, hey, come, hey, look at me. It's going to be okay. You're going to be fine. I love being in that situation where somebody's just unraveled because they're freaking out because of their sin or their mistake, and you're like, hey, hey, it's okay. It's okay. You may, there may be some consequences. You may have to live with this a little bit. But God is a God who has removed condemnation through the work of Jesus. You're going to be fine. You made a mistake. But those of us who are in Christ, when we don't live in fellowship with him, we feel the weight of conviction. The first defining characteristic of a child of God who is living in sin, the first defining characteristic of the discipline of the Lord is the convicted and arrested conscience of that child of God. I don't feel conviction. I don't feel like I'm not okay with this. I'm not at peace with this. Other than Jesus, Abraham is possibly the most important person in the Bible. The first 11 chapters of Genesis cover all of primeval history. About 3,000 years is covered in 11 chapters. It's 19 generations, and they're long generations. But now, for the next 14 chapters of the book of Genesis, the focus will be on Abraham. So the creation of the entire universe, the start of the human race, civilizations and cities established, the flood, the table of nations, people groups established, geography, anthropology, ancient history are all covered in 11 chapters, but the life of this one single man, and it's only half of his life, which opens up the patriarchal history of scripture, is given 14 chapters, and he is held forth as the, as the great example of faith. The book of Galatians devotes two chapters to him. Romans devotes a whole chapter, for the most part, a chapter to him. Hebrews lists him as the father of faith. What Moses meant for the giving and receiving of the law, what David was to the role of king and the writer of songs and psalms, what Aaron was to the role of the priest, what Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel were as prophets, what Peter was as a preacher, what Paul was as a missionary, were all so important, but it is Abraham and all of his idiosyncrasies and failures and shortcomings who is held forth as the father and ultimate example of a faith that is lived out. Our text says that without faith, it's impossible to please God can't please God without faith. And Abraham's the example. The doctrine of justification by faith is foundational to the gospel and foundational to church history. In the Middle Ages, the world had come under the captivating and enslaving control of a global church. 
and papal authority. When the Pope said, what the Pope said was final authority, even over the scriptures. But it didn't matter because people weren't allowed to read the scripture or have an understanding of the scripture for themselves. In fact, in Bible translation in the 13th or the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries, people lost their heads for simply translating the scripture into the language of common people. They didn't know what the Bible said. They had to rely on priests to tell them. So you're relying on someone else to interpret for you what the word of God says. They then had to give those priests money and pray to the priests believing that this would keep them in good standing with God. The works-based system of salvation was controlled by powerful people over often ignorant and uneducated people. It was the first form of a sort of prosperity gospel. But Martin Luther and the reformers recognized that the foundational truth for salvation was that of justification by faith. This is the teaching that we are saved through faith by simply putting our trust in the Lord and depending on him to provide salvation by grace. He does the work. We cast ourselves into his mercy, submit and surrender to him as our savior, trust in him to save us and turn from ourselves. And when this doctrine is exemplified by Paul in the New Testament's writings, it is Abraham who he puts forth as the great example and standard bearer. At this point, Paul had so many New Testament examples of saving faith. When Paul points to Abraham, you know how many examples of saving faith Paul had? The writers of the four gospels, many of the conversion stories from the ministry of Jesus, the kings, priests, prophets from the Hebrew scriptures are all bypassed and overlooked to go back to the original response of Abraham to Yahweh as the example of faith. And Abraham was a hot mess, but he's our example. That's good news. Abraham didn't have it all together. He was a pagan worshiper. You know, Abraham came from a place called Ur. We, we pronounce it Ur usually, but it's Ur. It's a, it was a place in the, it was a Mesopotamian city, Mesopotamian city. And here's what we know about Ur of the Chaldees. That city, and not, listen, this is fascinating. Some of you are going to be like, because I'm starting talking about history. All right, and some of you are going to be like, all the history nerds, edge of their seat. Me and y'all, let's go into this world for, about four minutes, okay? Just we, the rest of y'all, you're welcome to come. If not, some candy crushed. People still play that? I don't know. I don't, I don't have any games on my phone, so I don't know. Roblox. All right, there we go. So, all right, so, so Ur of the Chaldees was uh, it, one of the, this is crazy, but one of the greatest archaeological digs in history happened in the late 20s to early 30s by a British archaeologist. This is recognized, by the way, in the, like, like, the, the findings from Ur are divided between National Museum in Iraq, one in Great Britain, and one in St. Louis. Okay, so they divided these, these artifacts. And it's fascinating what they found because we're talking about a city that predates the pyramids by a couple thousand years. They, and so they go in, this guy, Wooly, Wooly Woolsey was his name. He's a British archaeologist. Goes in, and Indiana Jones stuff, whip, hat. Like, goes in there, and they're digging, and they're, and, they're, and they're rooting around in this city. And here's what they find. 1,800 tombs. But 16 of the tombs are unique because 16 of the tombs contain royalty. And two of those tombs, here's what they find. Let me tell you about the one. They found a, a lady who they believe to have been the queen of the city. And you can look at this stuff. You can, listen, I'm going to tell you something. I believe in Wikipedia. It's not bad. It shouldn't be hated on. You should get to use it as a source on your projects and papers. I'm just saying. All right, so along with YouTube. Okay, so 
So here's what I know to be true. In, in the excavation of this lady's tomb, this is fascinating. I should have had a picture, boom, to put up there. There's, but you can Google that. Google images, they got it, okay? In that tomb, there is, there is a box containing this queen. And they were able to pull, this is the 1930. They were able to pull out of this her headdress, some of the ornaments that she was wearing. And here's what was buried with her in that tomb. Five armed guards. And beside their remains were copper daggers and the cups assumed to have held the poison that they drank to commit suicide to go into the afterlife of this woman. Thirteen attending maidens predicted and thought to be young teenage girls who were dressed in ornamental clothing and who would have gone into the afterlife with this queen to tend to her. Beside each of them, a cup that is assumed to have been the cup that held the poison that they drank to go into the afterlife. Also in that tomb, two, the, the skeletal remains of two oxen and two ox uh, guys that would have tended each of those oxen and an ox cart laden with silver and gold and lots of things that would have provided wealth and riches in that time and surrounding the ox cart, any number of skeletal remains from further attenders expected and thought to be simply slaves that were to go into the afterlife with her. Isn't that fascinating? Also... In Ur is found the oldest temple or structure known in, in the world to date. There's a ziggurat, which is, expect, which is thought to be what the Tower of Babel was built like, that was essentially a temple to the goddess of Ur, which was called Nana, and she was the moon god. And there was a temple there, and under that temple were many of these tombs, and, and we know that Joshua, sometime after the time of Abram, writes about him and says, back before we came to Canaan, before God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, his father Terah worshipped the pagan moon gods in Ur. Okay, you everybody tracking? So Abram likely grew up as a boy worshipping at the temple to Nana. All right, now here's the thing. <laughs> this is crazy. They also found a ton of like hieroglyphic type writings, cuneiform tablets, and, and things that were chiseled out that display a glimpse into day-to-day -day life in, in these Mesopotamian cities. So here's what we know. In those cities were the first recorded uh, class systems. There were slaves, servants, blue-collar workers, construction workers, dedicated military and police, there was royalty, a royal class, a wealthy group of people. And we know this, that when Abram left out of there, he left a wealthy man. He had people and possessions, and he left out of there. And his journey takes him to Canaan by way of Egypt, whereby he amasses and accumulates more stuff. The point being this, God called Abram out of the world that he knew and was comfortable with. And ultimately, I think that the example of that Abram sets for us, what it looks like to live by faith, is that he left it all behind. He's willing to walk away from it. And I think that biblically, the argument can be made through some of the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels that people often begin that journey and they look back. That's why Jesus would say, put your hand on the plow and don't look back. This is why parables are given about the, the seeds and the sower about someone who runs back to tend to something at home. You see, people who fall away, turn away, or become indifferent, 
they start looking back. They start looking to the side. They take their eyes off of Jesus. Abram's given us the ultimate example of what it means to be a man of faith. He responds to the call of God, and he lives by the promises of God. So in conclusion, how do we stay true to our call? First, recognize that you live by faith. Recognize that you live by faith. Don't be ashamed or afraid of that. Apologetics and theology are incredible resources for growth. Appreciation of what God has done and who God is, as well as a way of defending our faith in our own minds. But we need to remember that the scripture says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. We live by faith. Additionally, Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Consider all of the men and women in Scripture who are remembered for great things and teach us how to live out those great things. But Abraham is the example of what it looks like to live by faith. He be- what? Pare it down. He believed God, and he acted on it. And then he kept acting on it. Additionally, lean into your faith with that kind of active obedience. Lean into your faith with that kind of active obedience. In other words, take God at his word and obey it. Take God at his word and obey it. Do that and you'll grow. And the last three, learn, this is important, learn that solitude and quiet are critical. You need that. But Little was sharing with me something she read in a book recently. When we think of solitude and quiet, I think we tend to think of it as a place to rest and relax but it's actually the place where we prepare for war. So it's like solitude and quiet are not resting and relaxing from battle. They are preparation for battle. That, that one principle will change the way you approach your daily time with the Lord. It's preparation for battle. Solitude and quiet prepare us for the time that we're gonna go to battle today. Learn that community is for more than corporate worship. Community is for more than corporate worship. We're to build one another up, strengthen one another, encourage one another. We need each other. And last, remember this, there are no days off. There are no days off. You take a day off, you will get eaten by a lion. The scripture says that Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There are no days off. I guess last in a less theological framework, I would say this. Don't freak out. You're going to have some hard times, some rough days. Stay in the race. Stay in the fight. Hand to the plow. Don't look back. Focus on Jesus. Live by faith. Lean into that obedience. Lean into, lean into that faith with obedience. Take God at his word and recognize that when you do that, you please the Lord. And in that pleasure comes blessing. And that blessing will strengthen you. And it's cyclical. And... Once you're to that place of surrender, which most of us probably are, God's got you. Walk in that surrender, daily surrendering to Jesus. Thanks for listening. We hope this has encouraged you in your walk with Christ. Be sure to give us a rating and review. And for more Snowbird content, check out our other podcast, No Sanity Required.